Hello, this is Adrian Hendricks. And Jerry Hendricks with Say One More Now, Incorporated, where our focus is to lovingly confront all activities dishonoring human life created in the image of God. There is no greater dishonor to God in human life than to reject His eternal salvation only available through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us. Many things that date people are references to the culture in which they grew. One such giveaway is what one remembers from their school years. For example, what comes to mind when you hear the word Invictus? Today, it may be best known as the title of a movie about Nelson Mandela. For others, perhaps older listeners, it may evoke memories of a poem from their literature classes called Invictus by William Ernest Henley that goes like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. According to Wikipedia, Henley suffered many hardships in his youth, including the amputation of his left leg due to tuberculosis complications. Instead of following doctors' advice to remove the right foot, Henley instead put himself under the care of Joseph Lister, and while recuperating from treatment, he wrote this poem. According to Dictionary.com, the word Invictus means unconquered. To be honest, there seems to be more written about this poem than about Henley's life and his connection to the Lord. One source says he was an avowed atheist, and this poem was a testament to his own strength of will to overcome what Henley saw as the pointless difficulties in life. This poem has been taken by many as a praise anthem for the indomitable, unconquerable will of the human spirit to overcome all odds. However, Invictus leaves out this one crucial consideration. Because men did not make themselves, men neither know all that is within them, nor do they realize what they are capable of. Therefore, men cannot generate what is needed out of themselves to overcome what can separate them permanently from God, their Creator. Another poem was written by Dorothy Day, who, as a new believer in Jesus Messiah, entitled it Conquered and provided an appropriate and scripturally sound contrast to Invictus. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud, under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, that spite the menace of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate, he cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate, Christ is the captain of my soul. Although very different in spirit, both of these poems have a lot in common, in structure, in cadence, and in implication of ownership. Today's message is entitled, The Fallacy of Self-Ownership. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines the word fallacy as a false or mistaken idea, 
erroneous, deceptive appearance, guile, trickery, an often plausible argument using false or invalid inference. According to the Word of God, we will show how the concept of self-ownership is false and mistaken, erroneous, deceptive, and based on false and invalid foundations. Wikipedia explains self-ownership like this. Self-ownership, also known as sovereignty of the individual or individual sovereignty, is the concept of property in one's own person, expressed as the moral or natural right of a person to have bodily integrity and be the exclusive controller of one's own body and life. Wikipedia also discusses bodily integrity as the inviolability of the physical body and emphasizes the importance of personal autonomy, self-ownership, and self-determination of human beings over their own bodies. In the field of human rights, violation of the bodily integrity of another is regarded as an unethical infringement, intrusive, and possibly criminal. Dictionary.com defines inviolability as prohibiting violation, secure from destruction, violence, infringement, or desecration, incapable of being violated, incorruptible, unassailable. We have taken more time than usual to provide definitions for these words to demonstrate that concepts and precepts from God exist today. The difference is that the words are disguised in high-sounding language, usually confusing to people, so they will not know they are protected from abuse by others. To restate in fewer words, self-ownership means each person belongs to himself or herself and can do what they want with and for themselves without interference by others. It used not to be that way. People used to know that they would need to answer to God one day, but that was also a time when human life was considered valuable and not to be destroyed carelessly, if at all. The poem Invictus declares that the speaker owns and is gladly and fully responsible for himself. The poem Concord also declares that the speaker is owned, also gladly and with the responsibility purchased by Jesus the Creator. In fact, Invictus in its I'm the boss of me announcement has an incredibly powerful appeal to everything fleshly. Some might even say that it is a manifesto of every man against God. Surely, Invictus fits the world system's demonic concept in which humanity throws off every vestige of reverence for and acknowledgement of God as creator. The ways of the world push and promote the concepts of self-ownership and autonomous behavior based on desire of the moment, all reflected in proud words from the tongue. This form of wickedness shows itself in widespread self-abuse through practices of fornication, adultery, gluttony, alcoholism, and drug addiction, to name just a few. Many people are taught that all these things are pleasures they should go after. Consequently, those who indulge may find themselves in situations for which the only solutions they are given will lead to more abuse or will turn their attention toward the abuse of others with the goal of self-gratification, not relief or peace. There are many things we could say about the thinking behind these deeds, but those who shake their fists at God by their actions believe they own themselves. 
Perhaps many are hearing this for the first time, but as with other keys to living, the Bible has some clues that we are not only stewards of our material goods, but most importantly, we are stewards of our words, ourselves, and each other. Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37 records Jesus' words to his disciples. And I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they should give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. In saying this, perhaps the Lord was referring to Psalm 12, verses 1 through 4 that reads, Send help, Lord, for mercy has come to an end. There is no more faith among the children of men. Everyone says false words to his neighbor. Their tongues are smooth in their talk, and their hearts are full of deceit. The smooth lips and the tongue of pride will be cut off by the Lord. They have said, With our tongues will we overcome. Our lips are ours. Who is Lord over us? The sense in this psalm is that wickedness among people rides in on ungodly speech that refuses rebuke and wills itself not to stop. The remainder of the psalm indicates the rescue that will be effected by the Lord himself with purity of speech. Because of the crushing of the poor and the weeping of those in need, now will I come to his help, says the Lord. I will give him the salvation which he is desiring. The words of the Lord are true words, like silver tested by fire and burned clean seven times. You will keep them, O Lord. You will keep them safe from this generation forever. The sinners are walking on every side, and evil is honored among the children of men. Then we have Romans 14, verses 7 through 13, that not only describes how each person will need to give an answer for his or her behavior, but also for what kind of influence they have had on other believers. For every man's life and every man's death has a relation to others as well as to himself. As long as we have life, we are living to the Lord. For if we give up our life, it is to the Lord. So if we are living, or if our life comes to an end, we are the Lord's. And for this purpose, Christ went into death and came back again, that he might be the Lord of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you make yourself your brother's judge? Or again, why have you no respect for your brother? Because we will all have to take our place before God as our judge. For it is said in the holy writings, By my life, says the Lord, to me every knee will be bent and every tongue will give worship to God. So every one of us will have to give an account of himself to God. Then let us not be judges of one another any longer, but keep this in mind, that no man is to make it hard for his brother or give him cause for doubting. The writer of Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 even cautions those under the authority of others to live in a way that does not bring sorrow, since those over them have to explain their care or their lack of care over them. Give ear to those who are rulers over you, and do as they say, for they keep watch over your souls, ready to give an account of them. Let them be able to do this with joy, and not with grief, because that would be of no profit to you. 
And 1 Peter chapter 4 provides explicit instructions on how we should live, knowing that not only we, but also those who live against the knowledge and respect of God will be judged. So that as Jesus was put to death in the flesh, do you yourselves be of the same mind, for the death of the flesh puts an end to sin, so that you may give the rest of your lives in the flesh, not to the desires of men, but to the purpose of God. Because for long enough, in times past, we have been living after the way of the Gentiles, given up to the desires of the flesh, to drinking and feasting and loose behavior and unclean worship of images. And they are wondering that you no longer go with them in this violent way of life and are saying evil things of you but they will have to give an account of themselves to him who is ready to be the judge of the living and the dead for this was the reason why the good news of Jesus was given even to the dead so that they might be judged as men in the flesh but might be living before God in the spirit but the end of all things is near so be serious in your behavior and keep on the watch with prayer and most of all be warm in your love for one another because in love there is forgiveness for sins without number. Keep open house for all with a glad heart, making distribution among one another of whatever has been given to you like true servants of the unmeasured grace of God. If anyone has anything to say, let it be as the words of God. If anyone has the desire to be the servant of others, let him do it in the strength which is given by God, so that in all things God may have the glory through Jesus Christ, whose are the glory and the power Forever. Dear brothers, do not be surprised as if it was something strange, if your faith is tested by fire. But be glad that you are given a part in the pains of Christ, so that at the revelation of his glory you may have great joy. If men say evil things of you because of the name of Christ, happy are you, for the spirit of glory and of God is resting on you. Let no one among you undergo punishment as a taker of life, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as one who is over-interested in other men's business. But if he undergoes punishment as a Christian, that is no shame to him. Let him give glory to God in this name. For the time has come for the judging, starting with the church of God. But if it makes a start with us, what will be the end of those who are not under the rule of God? And if it is hard for even the good man to get salvation, what chance has the man without religion or the sinner? For this reason, let those who, by the purpose of God, undergo punishment, keep on in well-doing, and put their souls in the safe hands of their Maker. To be sure, every person will render a reason to God our Creator for what was done in his or her life. Those not part of God's kingdom will receive judgment at the end of their lives, but those in the kingdom can expect correction from the Lord when needed so that they can share in His holiness. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 7 through 11 explains like this, It is for your training that you undergo these things. God is acting to you as a father does to his sons. For what son does not have punishment from his father? But if you have not that punishment of which we all have our part, then you are not true sons but children of shame. And again, if the fathers of our flesh gave us punishment and had our respect, how much more will we be under the authority of the Father of spirits and have life? For they truly gave us punishment for a short time, as it seemed good to them. But he does it for our profit, so that we may become holy as he is. 
At the time, all punishment seems to be pain and not joy. But after, those who have been trained by it get from it the peace-giving fruit of righteousness. The truth is that none of us owns ourselves at all. Hear the word of God at Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's, with all its wealth, the world, and all the people living in it. At Psalm 50, verse 12, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. At Psalm 100, verse 3, Know you that the Lord, he is God, it is he that has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. At 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, do you not see that you are God's holy house and that the Spirit of God has his place in you? If anyone makes the house of God unclean, God will put an end to him, for the house of God is holy and you are his house. And at 1 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter that you should not associate with people who sin sexually, but I did not mean the people of this world. You will have to leave the world to get away from all the people who sin sexually or who are greedy and cheat each other or who worship idols. I meant you must not associate with people who claim to be believers but continue to live in sin. Don't even eat with a brother or a sister who sin sexually, is greedy, worships idols, abuses others with insults, gets drunk, or cheats people. It is not my business to judge those who are not part of the group of believers. God will judge them, but you must judge those who are part of your group. The scriptures say, make the evil person leave your group. Now at this point, many of you may be saying, hold on there. How does this last passage about judging other believers reconcile with those scriptures that instruct us not to judge? Well, the end of verse 12 reads, the scriptures say, and provides a clue. The Apostle Paul refers to the Old Testament law to prove to the Corinthians that what he is saying is true. Those references can be found in the book of Deuteronomy. Specific examples of how believers should judge the behavior of other believers are found in chapters 13, 17, 19, 21, 22, and 24. There is a significant difference between making judgments about the character of others based on their behavior and passing judgment about their eternal destiny. Indeed, the book of Jude is full of warnings about associating with those in the company of believers who behave like unbelievers in specific ways. God gives the opportunity to everyone on the planet to choose, within limits he has determined, how they will live. This is one reason why the destruction of babies through abortion is so hideous, because they are denied the opportunity to participate in the stewardship and eternal destiny God designed for them. Dr. William R. Lyle, Jr., board certified in obstetrics and gynecology, explains why abortion is uncalled for. Life begins at conception. The union of a sperm and an egg create a new life, genetically unique from either the mother or the father. The blood of the baby does not circulate with the blood of the mother and is often even of a different blood type. The mother is the life support system for the baby. Surgeries are now being performed on the babies while still in the womb. The babies are patients and deserve legal protection. Prior to surgery being performed on the unborn, informed consent is obtained from the mother. Risks, benefits, indications, and alternatives are reviewed. The mother is exposed to risks such as bleeding and infection, but the benefits are for the unborn baby. Therefore, the informed consent applies to both mother and the unborn child. 
the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, ACOG, defines informed consent in committee opinion number 439 as, quote, the principle of respect for persons, end quote. Per ACOG, seeking informed consent expresses respect for the patient as a person. It particularly respects a patient's moral right to bodily integrity. The intentional taking of the life of the unborn thus violates the patient's moral right to bodily integrity. The unborn are patients and deserve all of the rights and protection afforded to children and adults. But today, human life has become less and less deserving of rights and protections, no matter the age. People are being ushered to their deaths, either deliberately or otherwise, in increasing numbers from the pre-born to the very old. We are seeing people in authority who believe they not only own themselves, but also own other people, allow the destruction of lives for which they will ultimately need to give an account before God Almighty. For us to do what we want, with whom or what we want, as long as we want, whether we are in or out of God's kingdom, has already been addressed at Acts 17 verses 24 through 31. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he is given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus the Messiah is that man appointed, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 4 through 10 describes his rescue of the righteous. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. One more thing that self-ownership does is distort one's ability to distinguish between what is good and what is not good. 
Micah 6, verses 6 through 8 says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? In his book, The Hidden Rift with God, William D. Backus writes, We alienate ourselves from God by actively contradicting Him, by taking issue with Him over what is good. Instead of accepting His view of what is good for us, we disagree with Him. We wish for and act on our own view of what is good. The cure is God's free gift of righteousness gained for us when Jesus offered Himself for us. We gain this gift by grace through faith. This righteousness alone reunites us with God. It is our life-giving reconnection to our source. Both righteousness and faith come from God, not from our own efforts. It is the living out of both righteousness and faith that requires energetic commitment and effort. The work is up to you. To be conquered by the love of the Savior Jesus is an indescribable blessing, both for now and for eternity to come. To remain unconquered by God is the greatest risk one could take. Although this stance may allow victory over what appear to be insurmountable odds in life, it will hold no sway at all before Creator God, who has declared three times at Isaiah chapter 45 verse 23, Romans chapter 14 verse 11, and Philippians chapter 2 verse 10 that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Let's take one final look at scripture found at 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20. Keep away from the desires of the flesh. Each sin which a man does is outside of the body, but he who goes after the desires of the flesh does evil to his body. Or are you not conscious that your body is a house for the Holy Spirit which is in you and which has been given to you by God? And you are not the owner of yourselves, for a payment has been made for you. Let God be honored in your body." We're not naive enough to believe that everyone who hears this message will take it to heart, think about how they are living, and how they will explain their deeds to the Lord of the living and the dead. But it is our hope and prayer that Adam Clark's commentary on 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19 will cause listeners to consider the goodness and mercy of God and decide whether or not turning the reins of their lives to Him will yield better results than what they have produced thus far. You have no right over yourselves to dispose either of your body or any of its members as you may think proper or lawful. You are bound to God and to Him you are accountable. We at Save One More Now Incorporated encourage all listeners to seek the Lord for His calling on your life. If you faithfully spend time with Him throughout the day, you will come to know without a doubt that He really loves you and He has a purpose for your being here. You can hear this message again on our website at saveonemorenow.org. We can be reached by email at truelife at saveonemorenow.org or our telephone number in the United States, 850-727-0493. We look forward to joining you next week and ask you to remember, Life is good. God gives life. God is good.